can remember driving home from quite a few night shifts actually on the motorway and thinking I had my eyes open and they're just not and I go on to the hard shoulder bit which makes the horrible rattly noise and that's what jolts me awake and realise I don't have my eyes open and I just don't feel safe to drive. So driving home from my last night shift in one hospital on rotation day, I managed to have a micro sleep less than half a mile from my home and drove into a bus going at 30 miles an hour in the opposite direction. The driver's side wheel of my car ended up 30 foot behind my car and I had to climb out of the car through the boot. Mainly a constant feeling of being slightly afraid that you're going to cause harm to someone on nights, not because of any lack of knowledge or ability to deal with a situation, but just because you're not thinking straight enough and have made a small error. dog lover and a recovering workaholic. And I'm Nadia Taylor, an anaesthetic SHO, mum to two little ones and self-proclaimed foodie. And you're listening to Coffee and a Gas, a podcast about all things well-being for anaesthetists of all ages and stages. Looking after ourselves is more important now than ever. We're here to explore our bad habits, fears and concerns, as well as learning the strategies to combat them and feel well. We're chatting about things like stress management, diet and sleep, and talking to some pretty great people along the way. So whether you're listening to us with a cup of tea in hand after a tough day at work, or nursing your morning coffee waiting for the bus, we hope you enjoy this journey of feeling well together. So welcome back to our sixth episode of Coffee in a Gas and today we're going to be talking about fatigue. Fatigue is something that we have all experienced as anaesthetists even before the pandemic but I think we've all now no doubt experienced both physical and psychological fatigue related to COVID-19 and it's a really topical episode for us. So today we're talking to Dr. Rue McCrossan and Dr. Emma Plunkett, who are consultant anaesthetists who pioneered the association's Fight Fatigue campaign. So hi Rue and Emma, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Well, thanks so much for having us, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, yay, we managed to do it finally, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's, been a, it's been a long time coming, but definitely will be worth it. So I'm going to start with you, Rue. I... I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about fatigue, because I think a lot of us feel that fatigue is, you know, just having a feeling a bit tired, having maybe a not great day at work, going to bed a bit early. But actually, what is fatigue and what maybe do we not understand about it that we should? So it kind of is some of the things you've just said, really. So quite simply putting it, fatigue is the subjective feeling of needing to sleep. And you can kind of categorise that by decreased alertness. You get impaired neurobehavioural performance. You feel sleepy, so you'd be yawning, rubbing your eyes. But it also causes an increased risk of accident and injury. And the main reason we get fatigue is simply just because we haven't had enough sleep. So that could be because of the quantity of sleep or the quality of sleep that you get. So both of those are quite important. And um, when we think about the things that cause fatigue it it kind of centers around three main things which are basically the time you've spent asleep the time you've been awake and the time of day it is 
the time you spend asleep. So that's quite important. And for most adults, it's about seven to eight hours a night. But like, bear in mind, everybody needs a different amount of sleep. And you kind of need to learn what's right for you because everybody's different. If you get less sleep than you need, you accrue a sleep debt and then you have to pay back your debt. It's not as simple as paying back a debt in a bank or whatever. Like you have, if you have one night of like impaired sleep, it actually takes you two nights after that of normal sleep before you can catch up. So it takes time to pay back that sleep debt. And it really interestingly, you know, if you think like you're quite busy and, oh, well, I've had six hours tonight, it'll be all right. And, you know, tomorrow maybe I'll manage seven, but you're actually needing eight. If you do that for two weeks, so if you have two weeks of six hours sleep when you should be getting eight, it's actually equivalent to having one night of absolutely no sleep at all. Pretty incredible, really. So basically, I think most of us are probably already sleep deprived and we don't realise it. So I don't know about you guys, but like, do you fall asleep within five minutes of going to bed? Nadia, do you fall asleep quickly at night? You know what? I do now because I've started doing sleep meditations to help me fall asleep. Because previously I'd really struggle with, really struggle to go to sleep because I think I had it yesterday. I had a bit of an incident at work. I felt really uncomfortable, really unhappy about it. I didn't debrief. It wasn't I don't think anyone would have necessarily thought it was a major incident. Nobody came to harm. But for me, it was quite a big deal. And I was really, it was going round and round in my head. And I thought, I know the only way I'm going to fall asleep is do a sleep meditation. So I did. And then, yeah, I managed to fall asleep quickly. However, that 3.30 comes around every night. <laughs> and that's the killer. It's interesting you say, because I've, I've been quite tired recently, actually. And I am falling asleep when I get straight into bed. And actually, that's not a good thing. So you might not know that, that it should actually take you about 15 minutes to fall asleep. So if you are getting into bed and just going straight to sleep, you probably need to look at your core sleep. And there's some things we can talk about to try and help with that as well. I said as well about being how long you've been awake and how that affects you, your fatigue and you feeling tired. So the longer you're awake, the more your alertness goes down. So once you're awake for 14 hours continuously, you start to notice a decrease in people's alertness and their ability to do tasks. Once you get to 21 hours awake, it's equivalent to having a blood alcohol level of 0.1%. So that's over the drink drive limit. So that's quite, you know, that's, that's pretty scary, isn't it, if we're working in those conditions with patients. Um, so your accident risk obviously goes up and that starts to go up quite early on. Actually, it's between eight to 12 hours. And the, your accident risk sort of exponentially increases with the number of hours you can work or the, like the time on the task, basically. So it's important, really, that we take breaks and that we get good sleep in between our shifts. And the time of day is really important as well, because we do a lot of work around managing night shift. So you can sleep really easily, can't you, at day in the daytime? Because we are creatures of the sun, basically. You you get up when the sun rises and you start to feel sleepy when the sun goes down. And that's why people find winter quite hard, I think, with the early dark nights. You get your best alertness in the morning and again in the evening, and it sort of follows a circadian rhythm. But you also have, as well as having peaks, you have dips, and you'll notice that, actually. So I have a massive dip after lunch, and I, that's, that's quite a normal thing. That's a physiological thing. So you have a dip at between 1pm and 3pm, and you notice that because you're awake. But you also have a dip between 2am and 4am. You don't normally know about that because you're asleep, but you do if you're on a night shift, and that's a time you really, really have to be careful. So it's kind of like if you're working overnight, it's absolutely not the same as working during the day. It's pretty much like working when you're jet-lagged. The blood alcohol statistic that you that you gave us was like really eye-opening because 
often it's the time when you're most tired so the middle of the night or the early hours of your night shift is when you need to be the most awake if you're maybe doing something alone in theater or managing an emergency and that's when you're most likely to make a mistake anyway because of the environment but then you're also sleep deprived so yeah it's really interesting that sleep is the main part of fatigue because i think i saw it more as also a psychological process so is there kind of a mental element to fatigue? And I'm just going to ask Emma about that. Is that something that makes a big part of it? Well, I think there are different aspects to fatigue, aren't they? So Ruth's talked really well about the sort of physiological kind of side of fatigue. And I think just before I forget, I think I, someone told me this once, I can't take any credit for it, but they said that fatigue should be seen as like a warning sign. So it's your body sort of telling you that you need to do something different. And often it's that you need to sleep because you haven't had enough sleep for all of the reasons that Ruth said. Sometimes, though, it's because you've been on task for a really long time and you need to take a break and do something different. And it may not be that you need to sleep. It may just be that you need a change. Actually, you might need to go and do some exercise, get outside, go for a walk, stretch, that sort of thing. But the other thing is sometimes we get, um, I think I'm interested in this as well, because I see this at work, you get this the whole idea of decision fatigue. So actually, you've constantly, I mean, I mean, you get it when you're working on ITU and you're faced with multiple decisions to make. I see it when I'm doing like a pre-op clinic, looking at loads of piles of notes. So actually, I find it harder and harder to make a decision. It takes me longer. And I guess that's another sign that you need to have a break and do something different. So, yeah, I think there are different aspects to fatigue. But if you kind of broadly think about it as actually, what is my body telling me that I need to do? Do I need more sleep? Do I need to rest? Do I need to do something different? And what and what helps me in that sort of situation? Yeah, so we've mentioned obviously sleepiness as a sign of fatigue and going to sleep really quickly and feeling really tired. But are there other signs of fatigue that perhaps are less well known that we should maybe be aware of? I think we learn to sort of recognise them in terms of the kind of physical sign of things. The kind of sleepy ones are the kind of easier ones, the sort of yawning, I guess, the head head nodding there's micro sleeps which actually I didn't really know about until I started doing all this work but the micro sleeps there's kind of sudden unexpected sleep so you can't predict them kind of reliably it's not like you you feel a bit sleepy and then you can stop yourself having one I think it's kind of like a sudden sleep so that's when you kind of head jolts awake or and you kind of wake with a start so that's a kind of another a sign that you need to kind of rest and that you're you're fatigued And then I guess there are other sort of, I suppose, more subtle kind of psychological signs. So we know it it affects things like ability. I've said ability to make decisions, but even like your empathy and your communication. And I bet you've all experienced at the end of a night shift where your words come out in a slightly wrong order. And actually, that is that is a real sign that you're you're fatigued and you need to kind of do something different about it. It's, it's interesting you said that because um, you're making me think of my, um, after doing a really busy night on ITU and um, just handing over at the end and I, I would suddenly just stop in the middle of the sentence. And it wasn't until we started doing all this fatigue work and I learned about microsleeps, I think that's what, what was happening. So I would suddenly stop the sentence and then I just wouldn't have a clue what I was saying because I was just so, so tired. And I think it was my brain just kind of shutting down going, right, that, that's enough now, you need to stop. <laughs> so. so one thing that I feel like I've sort of experienced is kind of like a tiredness over many, many weeks or months, you know, when you've been working in ITU Rota, and you've also been doing your exams, that kind of pressure. And I I call it burnout, but I don't know that it is burnout. Is there an overlap between fatigue and burnout? Or is it kind of one of those things that contributes to burnout? 
and are there real differences in between the two I, I guess you have to think about like burnout has got a proper definition hasn't it it's a triad of emotional exhaustion um decreased personal accomplishment and depersonalization so that's not the same of, as fatigue but emotional exhaustion feels like fatigue so I think that's where the kind of overlap comes in the other way I think it comes in is some of the burnout scales ask you fatigue sort of related questions so I think the one they use in the GMC survey asks about do you feel exhausted at the thought of another day at work so that's where the sort of fatigue element kind of over overlaps so I suppose from my perspective I I think that fatigue chronic fatigue can contribute to burnout but it's not the same thing and there are other elements to burnout that need to be experienced to kind of have that have that definition and I wonder and I don't know the data on this but I do wonder if a lot of us medics feel that emotional exhaustion element of burnout in particular it feels like it kind of resonates a lot and I think that's that's the aspect and then if you bring that into maybe not feeling feeling valued by your organization not feeling able to get things done you know that kind of lack of empathy then you're kind of more moving into burnout so that's the way I kind of see them overlapping and I think it's also the language that we use because I think we're very comfortable mm-hmm. saying we're tired because you know we're always mm-hmm. tired and we're more comfortable saying we're burnt out because mm-hmm. that sort of has a more than tiredness type of element to it but we don't often say we're fatigued and that's not like a word that we use very much but actually kind of means what we're often trying to say is that we're just fatigued we're quite overwhelmed with the, the tasks so yeah, I think I, that's something I, I, I'll definitely use in the future. Like I'm feeling fatigued. For sure. yeah, that's a really good point, actually, Nikki. I think that's right. It is. It is not just tiredness. There is more to fatigue than that. And it. And yeah, um, sort of burnout. We sort of drop into conversation maybe a, a little bit more, but actually we maybe don't use the word fatigued as much as we should. I was just about to say there's a lot of talk at the moment about the effect of chronic excessive workload, isn't there? And things mm. coming out of the Kingsford and Michael West talks about that a lot. And um, it is something I think that's, especially with the COVID pandemic, that we're, you know, we are really all very overstretched and we've had a really terrible time over the last, you know, nearly two years now, isn't it? And it, it is important that we we try and look after each other and look after the workforce. And I guess some of the messages we're trying to get out with the fight for tea campaign are sort of almost extra important. We need to let people know that, you know, we still care about them. I think that's really important. Going on from that point, I want to talk more about perhaps the change in culture towards fatigue and whether that's something that you have seen, Emma, going through your career. So I don't know, if I'm talking about, you know, I'm the end of the night shift coming to my handover and I say that I'm tired... And I sometimes will get a comment from perhaps a more, should I say, an experienced consultant. Oh, when I used to do on calls, I was on call for like three weeks at a time. (laughs) I'd have like 20 minutes off where I still had to hold my bleep. Not you shouldn't be complaining. It's kind of, you know, it's done in jest. But I do wonder whether, have you seen a change in it? And do you believe there is still change to be done, perhaps. Is there a stigma when we talk about 
admitting that we are fatigued or about fatigue as a professional? Well, yes, there's definitely still work to do. Yes, I think we are sometimes our own worst enemies over the whole sort of stigma side of things. We can be reluctant to kind of ask for help. We can be reluctant to kind of stop and say what we really need. And I think that's why we need to sort of collectively work as a community to help each other to make that easier. I think that's the kind of real difference that we can we can make about this. I remember when I started as my kind of house jobs, it would be, you know, everybody would have an on-call room and somewhere to rest. You would all be, I think we were even like cooked breakfast on a weekend morning that we could all go and sit together. You'd just turn up and get this lovely fried breakfast and you know, yes, you do longer shifts, but yes, you're looked after a little bit more and everybody loves to feel kind of nurtured and supported and looked after. And then I think what's happened is hours have got shorter, that kind of, although we're still working at night, like Rue says, you know, it's not the same as working in the day. All of the the kind of support side of things has, has kind of taken away. And I think we're, I think we're making massive improvements in that like you know people are getting back rest facilities you know sleep pods are coming in you know there there are there is a lot of kind of encouraging change but we're definitely not there yet and I think and you know I think we are getting better at understanding our kind of own physiology and what we need as well but but still definitely more to do on that so that's why I mean I think this is hopefully will be helping people yeah I think with your campaign it kind of feels like there are two two parts to it there's the part the fact that there isn't there even is a campaign it's showing how important it is and the fact that we need to be talking about it and then too obviously there are parts of the there's the actual campaign itself which we'll go on to talk about later so Rue do you think that the pandemic has changed perhaps the stigma towards talking about fatigue I think it has actually I think that people are talking about it more because there's been a huge movement hasn't there there was it was starting to happen before the pandemic people talking about staff well-being and you know NHS people started there was this sort of you know something was in the air about that and then with the pandemic coming I think it really came to the fore and we realized how important it was and I think we gained things like rest areas and wobble rooms and all of those things that we could do, but we could only do those because we gained space because other activity wasn't happening in the hospital. And that's something you've I've noticed kind of with successive waves that those things have gone because we're using those areas. They've gone back to their clinical use now. So it's very, very different this time, like having to try and do everything at once. But even the fact like we're having this conversation now, that's brilliant. The MDU have just done a really big survey. So I think that was in the papers this morning about fatigue. I don't think that would have happened three years ago. It's because it was it was sort of a headline in The Guardian this morning that um one I think it was one in four NHS doctors said they were tired to the point of impairment. You know, I don't, I don't think we would have even had that headline before. So it is great that we're talking about it. It was lovely we had all those facilities during the pandemic, but it's really important that some of them stay. And like we've kept the wobble room in ITU, which is absolutely brilliant. And it is used as a rest area and people do, even from theatres, use, use that room as well. So it, we just have to hang on to what we've got and also try and extend where we haven't got services. Because some places don't have on-call rooms. Some pe- places have put them in. Others are, are still struggling, I would say. It's very different depending on where you are and where you work. I think that's exactly right. We've had the same experience. We converted our admissions lounge into rest areas for all the doctors on ITU. It was amazing. It's one of the things that their trainees really appreciate. And the consultants were all residents, so they were using it as well. And obviously that's gone back because we're now using them again. So I think it's about trying to kind of hold on to the 
the kind of positive things that have kind of hap- happened and, and kind of keep those really because I think they really do make a difference to people to have have somewhere where you can kind of rest we've just lost our well-being room which is a real shame I'm I'm you know I know office space is needed I I get that but it's really it's really hard yeah I think same experience here all those wonderful things yes working was tough in the pandemic but it was so wonderful having all of those extra points of care so not just the space but the food the food tokens that (laughs) I mean the list goes on and I think what I'm finding so challenging is that I feel like I'm still working in that not to the same extent but to a certain extent in that heightened environment of and stress that the ITU and COVID and has now become in this third fourth fifth wave wherever we're up to but all of those facilities have gone which is which is sad actually but you're right maybe it's something that we can take away and go back and and use as a point of discussion I think we've learnt loads from the pandemic in lots of different ways from sort of remote working and education and all of those things and I, I would hope that some of the well-being initiatives that were set up will carry on because people have realized they're important and actually we need them and the, the staff are the most important asset to the health service I think something that we were really interested in finding out is your personal experiences with fatigue because I think you know going along the lines of it's not something that we talk about very much I remember when I was in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic or just after the first wave actually when things were kind of coming down I only felt the fatigue after this sort of acute really intense bit had ended and I found myself doing back to doing normal anesthetic lists and I was you know if you had a long case I was kind of found myself leaning against the anesthetic machine and just like putting my head to the to, onto it and you know I'd just have sort of 10 seconds of eyes closed and then I'd open my eyes and be like oh no I can't fall asleep I'm in theatre you know looking after a patient <laughs> it, it was that that kind of spurred me on to then look at you know okay clearly I'm really tired if this is happening and I then decided to go less than full time and that really helped for, for me to have a bit more time to rest but I'm just wondering what whether you've had any moments like that where you're like yeah, this is really affecting me and perhaps I need to change something. I think I had a bit of a moment where um, basically would have, I must have fallen asleep at the wheel basically on the way home and I hit the curb. And I was only, I was actually really, really near my house. I was probably mm. like less than half a mile away from the house when that happened. And I did pull over and then I went to sleep. But it really, really frightened me and made me realise that you know, I shouldn't have been driving. And when I, I remember going into work and chatting about it to my friends, and they were like, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. And, you know, or I've hit the curb. And then one of my friends had hit the side of the time tunnel, for goodness sake, coming back from work. And we all just accepted this as kind of like a normal thing as part of night shift. And then when we started the fight fatigue campaign, because it was an absolutely tragic incident where Ronnie Patel, who's a trainee anaesthetist, crashed his car and had a head-on collision with a lorry, and he died in that accident. And that was kind of what started this work. But I felt that we had got to a point where we just thought that, that was okay and that was just part of our job. So that that was my kind of scary moment when I realised that maybe it's that I should stay at work and have a nap or actually I, I got to a point where I do feel like at the end of a shift sometimes I'm absolutely desperate to get out of the hospital and I know there's other people that must feel like that like you just have to get out of there sometimes. So I used to, um, I've got a travel pillow in my car and I know I can sleep at work, but and sometimes I just used to sleep in the car because I needed to be out of the building and I would sleep and then I would drive home. And so that was kind of my way of mitigating that and making sure that, you know, nothing happened to me and got home safely. 
I've been kind of similar for me. I've done, I suppose I did a lot of my junior doctor nights in, in London, so I didn't need to drive. I could get the tube. So that kind of was quite lucky. I've had an incident where I've sort of rolled backwards at traffic lights driving home after, you know, minor accident. But I'm sure it was, I was driving home after nights. So your concentration's just not quite there. I've worked less than full time. I've got kids who don't sleep. So I'm experiencing that kind of side of <laughs> fatigue. I don't seem to be able to make, well, they're better now. They're a bit older now. But that whole sort of, like you say, that kind of disturbed sleep at home, not being able to get that kind of good quality sleep. And that is never really talked about or kind of acknowledged as a kind of mm. when we're trying to juggle our young families. Um, but working less than full time at least meant that you had those days where you could be a bit of a zombie at home. Um, <laughs> apologies to my kids. <laughs> as I say, I had the same experience because I nearly just said, yeah, I've been tired for 11 years now. <laughs> That's how old my oldest is. Yeah. Rue, I've got to say, when you said that if you lose two hours sleep one night, you then have to catch up times two mm. hours the next night. I thought, my oldest is four and a half. I've got like nine yes. years <laughs> to yes. catch up sleep. <laughs> that is a big sleep debt. When you think about it, if you're an anaesthetic registrar working a one in eight rotor in eight years, Oof. you do like a year of night shifts. If I, I mean, that is right, isn't it? And Yeah, it's a huge amount, actually. It's, it really is. And you lose a lot of kind of sleep that way. So I think once we started this work, I, um, I, I massively changed my approach to night shifts and started doing it, kind of making sure that I slept later in the day before I went to work so that it was, wasn't so long since I'd last slept when I was driving home the kind of next day. I mean, I still do that thing where, you know, you kind of put the music on, you kind of, I used to eat packets of biscuits on the way home just to kind of distract myself and kind of, and and then I kind of understand that you crave sugar when you're tired and this is just your physiology Mm. kind of telling you kind of, or dictating what you do. So we we kind of find these ways, I guess, of coping um, and then you sort of understand the kind of science behind it a little bit more. But I hope we're getting there. It's getting more expected that if you've got a long drive like I, I'll ask I'm a college tutor now and I'll ask the trainers I'll try and work out how far they have to commute so it's just so that we know you know who's got that longer commute that might involve a motorway to make sure they you know are it's kind of expected that they might sleep off before they go home and we have got trainees who do that much more regularly than I think maybe we used to just wanted to get get home really and um, and I think we recognize it a bit more I just think that it sounds fantastic and it's the ideal, you know, that you're considering people's commutes and, and whether you're going to sleep. I just, as a mum with young kids, you've got to get home because you've got to try and help them get to school or help them get to summer camps in the summer holidays. And it is just an absolute minefield trying to make sure that you have enough sleep and doing all the things that you, you kind of want to do at home as well. And I just think perhaps I need to rethink about the importance of of that sleep that perhaps I should be thinking about sleeping at work not rushing home to try and tidy up put the washing on if I can help them get out to school and that's not something I've really thought about before because I think as parents we're always so obsessed about well, when we're not at work the mum guilt the dad guilt the parent guilt want to get home do what you can but actually perhaps I'm doing a disservice to my family by putting myself at risk when I drive home. I honestly think anybody, whatever stage you are in medicine, in your career, you have a quite frightening story, as we've heard today. So I think let's let's talk about what we can do and how we can change this. You've got this wonderful campaign I'm desperate to hear more about. So Rue, 
please talk us through your campaign and if you could give us some practical advice of what can we I'm I'm on nights next week what can I do okay. going into that night shift? <laughs> Who can I talk to about trying to make things better? How do I approach this this issue? I have to say, since we started doing this work, I completely changed my approach to how I approach my night shifts. I have to say that. And I'm, I, I blank out the day. I'll t- tell you a bit about what I do. Um, I, I blank out, used to blank out the day before. So in the past, I would try and do loads of things in that day. But I decided to leave it like it's not a day off. It's a pre-night shift prep day. And I would get my food ready for the evening meal so I didn't have to worry about it. I would make sure the kids were all sorted out so I didn't have to worry about it. And then I would go to sleep quite late in the day. And again, that's to reduce the number of continuous hours that you're awake. And Emma mentioned that before. So that's something you can do to help with the night shift. Running the shift itself, I guess, you know, they are awful. I I, I hate at nights. I, I, you know, I'm not going to deny that. It is really hard. One thing that I would try and do as well is not eat after midnight because your body really struggles to process food when you're eating, when normally you would be asleep, wouldn't you? So if you take a load of people who are fit and healthy and you give them a load of carbohydrate in the night, they're running, they start to run blood sugars of like 20 and things. So that's why you've got a higher risk of having diabetes. So one of the things they try to tell you to do is not eat after midnight. And if you're going to eat, because sometimes you do need to, don't you, to stay awake and um, try and eat some protein instead. So I used to have like a boiled egg or hummus or something like that. And, and that stops that spike in um, like your blood sugar. So that's a, a good way to do. Make sure you drink plenty. Try and take breaks. So if you are on shift with other people, work as a team. See if you can let each other out. Can somebody hold the bleep? There was one ITU I worked in that was brilliant where they used to do bleep filtering so that if you told the nurse in charge you were going off for a break, um, if any of the nurses need to ring you, they would go through the charge nurse before you got rang. So they would filter, so you know, you weren't getting rang every two minutes from each of the different beds. So that was amazing. And if you can sort of encourage that in your unit, that, that's absolutely fantastic. Obviously, sometimes you are the only anaesthetist, aren't you? And you just have to roll with it. Try and find somewhere to lie down if you can and get a nap if possible. Micro sleep. I'm um, sorry. If you have a power nap overnight, it does reduce the risk of micro sleep. So it actually makes you safer at work, and it makes you safer driving home later on. Power napping is something we probably should quickly run through. So it's having a nap at night, but it's going to take you 15 minutes to go to sleep, and you probably need to have about a 20 minute nap. So you need quite a long break if you think of adding those two things together, because you need time to fall asleep and then you need to be asleep. But you shouldn't sleep for too long. If you sleep for longer than 20 30 minutes you start to fall into phase four sleep and that's when you wake up and you feel really groggy and awful and you have really bad sleep inertia so that's what you're trying to avoid lots of people say they find it difficult but it does get better with practice so don't give up do try and have a power nap if you can overnight i'm trying to think of other things oh four o'clock in the morning at three and four o'clock in the morning and that circadian dip that's the time you really need to be careful when you're on shift and just check, check and double check. And if someone else can check it for you, like your drugs or if you're doing peds, like write stuff down for your drug doses, anything you can do to try and make that task safer. That's the time you really need to be on your guard. I don't know if there's anything else, Emma, you'd think of like night shift tips. Yeah, no, those are all really good. I think the one thing I would say as well, like don't worry about this. Like I know that the the kind of science behind it is kind of worrying, but if you... If you can't, if you're lying there before, you know, in the afternoon, before your night, you're thinking, oh, must sleep, must sleep, must sleep. That's the surest way to not be able to sleep. But just lie down, switch off for a bit, listen to meditation, 
just rest that is also good and the same kind of when you take your breaks at kind of at night yes it'd be lovely if you can have that kind of perfect power nap the whole sort of have a coffee go to sleep wake up as you're kind of waking up then the caffeine I mean I Nappuccino. Yes. We yes. learned this Nappuccino. in podcast too. It's, yeah. it's, it's a thing. It's a caffeinated nap. Yeah. Nappuccino. It's dead clever. Some people will <laughs> be able to do that, but some people won't. And so just if you just go and, and rest, then so you sort of be kind to yourself over this. Learn about what you need. Learn about what helps you. And try and put that in practice as best you can, I think, is the thing that kind of I would say. Everybody is so different, aren't they, Emma? Like what works for me might not work for you. And you need to find out actually what works for you. Yeah. And it depends a bit on how um, busy it is where you work. Obviously, if it's if it's really quiet and you're able to get a longer sleep reliably and you're not kind of having to kind of get up and do something really kind of complicated straight away, if you, you know, then you can have a longer sleep. That's not a bad thing. It's just you need to be aware that, that sleep inertia exists. And so you might want to time your, your naps and your breaks kind of ac- accordingly. The other thing I think is just to think about the recovery after night shifts. So obviously you need to sleep when you get home from work. Don't do what I used to do and faff around for ages because actually you start to feel okay because it's the morning and the light's there and actually you're all right. And then you, you know, put washing on, tidy the house, do all of that. And then don't get into bed till like 11 try to have your breakfast and then go to bed early because then that gives you longer then if you wake up after a couple of hours and are awake for a bit and then you've still got time to go back to sleep again later if you kind of want to and when you finish your nights try and have an early nap like 90 minutes so one or two sleep cycles so 90 minutes three hours whatever that would would be and then get up and get outside to kind of reset your body clock and try and go to bed at a normal time when I was younger, I could just stay up all day. It was fine. I could manage it. But then I find that a bit harder. And I think the key is to kind of sleep early and then get up and, and kind of try to help yourself get back in your normal routine. So those are the kind of, I suppose, the practical side of working night shifts that I would kind of suggest. So those are really great points that we can do. What can work do for us? Well, I think a little bit of this is trying to think about what would good look like? What would it look like if this was less of an issue? We're going to have to work nights this with 24-7 health service. So we would have rotors that gave us adequate time off to recover in between kind of days and nights. So that's the first thing, sensible rotors. And for consultants who do work all day, then might be on call and then work another day. Just have a think about if that really kind of works for you and you're getting enough rest and think about looking at your kind of job plan. So I think there's how we sort of plan our delivery of services. Obviously, it would rely on having, you know, adequate staff for to be able, you know, to kind of run things without gaps and people not being able to do kind of too much. So we're kind of really conscious of that throughout our sort of campaign work that, you know, that is a big issue. And that's the harder thing to to fix. I think a culture of being able to take breaks is really important. So I think you would feel supported in your workplace to be able to take breaks, and you would work together as a team to kind of manage that. And then we've talked about rest facilities, but then having somewhere, so you need to be encouraged to take a break, you need to have somewhere that you can take a break and a break that you can have a kind of nap in. And if you can do those and if you it can be an open culture and a supportive culture at work, then, you know, and you're rotated kind of reasonably and you know about your own sleep 
hygiene and what you can do, then I think we're starting to get somewhere. You've just made me think about now I've kind of crossed over from being a trainee to a consultant about role modeling and how we, you know, the, the, the behaviors we display to our colleagues in terms of like actually like eating our lunch and having breaks and that. And we do need to role model those good behaviors to create that culture. And actually that's quite important. And it's not something we always think about. I think there's a bit of a hero mentality, isn't there? Like we're just going to carry on. It's all going to be fine. And actually if you do stop and take a break in the day, you're going to be a better doctor and you're going to deliver better care, like, aren't you, if you've had that break? And I think it's something that we like, just need to bear that in mind sometimes. So it's something I'm conscious of now. And like, we always make sure the trainees get their breaks, but like, I need to sort of make sure that I get mine too, because that's also demonstrating good behaviour to them, isn't it? I think that's a lovely note to kind of bring things to a close. The point that you said about how we've got to get rid of this hero culture and that if you take a break, you will be a better doctor. I love that. And the other thing I'm going to do is give the boys who I'm on call with next week my bleep for half an hour because I'm the ITU on call. They get to chill because theatres are rarely called between the hours of 10 and 6. So, um, yeah, boys, if you're listening, look out for that ITU North bleep for next week. (laughs) Well, thank you so much um, for giving us your time. I know trying to get four doctors free on the same evening has uh, been a challenge, (laughs) but guys, we did it. So well done. Um, I think we've had a, a wonderful discussion, some really great points to take away, both practical and just kind of thought provoking about the importance of destigmatizing fatigue and trying to get your points out there from the campaign. So thank you very much. And I hope we all sleep well tonight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having yeah, us. Thanks for having sleep us. Well. Yeah, sleep well. Sleep well. <laughs> thanks for tuning in for this episode of Coffee and a Gas. We would love to hear what you think. So please leave us a comment on the Association of Anaesthetists website. And if you found this podcast useful and enjoyable, make sure to share it with your friends and colleagues. See you next time. Thank you.